You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcast, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. Theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. We are going into the best chapters of The Great Divorce, in my opinion. Forrest, if anyone's listening to us still, they're on the fourth session of this. That's right. So Chapter four. Chapter four, fourth session, because that's how you navigate a preface. So are you excited about this one? Because now we get into like the meat of the book. Like The first section of the book is really the part where I think most people give up before they get to this point. So I think there ought to be a congratulations for this moment, for if you have stuck with the book and or us for this section, preface one, two, and three, I think you ought to be congratulated. You're now at the easier part of the book. You made it to the spiky grass part of the book. To the spiky grass Out of Greytown. Out of Greytown to a different future. And the question is always, are we going to take that future? Are we going to actually accept the possibility of what's right in front of us? So the fourth chapter begins with, as the solid people came nearer, I still noticed they were moving with order and determination. You have this differentiation between the smoky, transparent people that were on the bus, that were in Greytown, that get transported up. The only exception, by the way, is the bus driver, right? Who The bus driver was full of light and everyone else was smoky and transparent. And it turns out they come to this really cool land where everything is more real than anything they've ever known. And they look around and they realize they're transparent. And the opposite is solid people. This is, by the way, Forrest, where I got my title for my book, Solid Souls, C.S. Lewis didn't actually say solid souls. He's a solid people, but I took some liberties there. I don't know about how you feel about this, but I feel like that the great divorce sets us up to think that we aren't the solid people, but we're the people from Greytown. Yeah, I see that. It's not like we have everything together. There's not a single person I've known who doesn't have some issue that we're about to address as the Greytown people do that we have to give up or we have to navigate differently. And so it's like, We're about to be approached with a bunch of people who actually understand the way the world is supposed to be, understand how to live our best lives, and we get the choice, are we going to live it? I love the foreshadowing. He goes, the solid people came near and they're moving with order and determination as though each of them had his marked man in our shadowy company. I just picture it, you know, you walk into a crowd and you see somebody, like at an airport, you know, every once in a while you'll see somebody you don't really know, or you you know from your past, but you're in a hurry and they see you. Like from across the airport. They just marked you. And they and marked you. And you're, you're like, oh dear, this is going to be 30 minutes. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Except now they're scared because these other people are solid and they're transparent and they're really afraid of what's going to happen with it. The interesting setup, which we're going to talk about more in chapter six, is the nature of the world in which they're in. So just put a pause in it because there are some sections here that are really cool. Like the grass was hard as diamonds. A bird ran across in front of me and I envied it. It belonged to that country and was as real as the grass. It could bend the stalks and spatter itself with the dew. 
so that you've got this huge difference between the Greytown people who can't even bend a blade of grass, and that makes the grass as hard as diamonds, and then things that belong to that world that actually interact with it. I want to put a pin in that because really chapter six, we're going to talk way more about the nature of that world and dive into the conversation that's here. Because in chapter four, you get what basically comprises the rest of the book, which is a conversation between a transparent, smoky, Greytown person, a shriveled soul in my way of understanding it, and the solid people, the solid souls that come down from heaven and start engaging with them. So the first one is one of the guys that was marked by a solid man. He was followed by one of the bright people. And he says, don't you know me? Like the solid person's like, don't you recognize me? And the ghost found it impossible not to respond, turns around, realizes who it is and says, and just a, you know, warning for any kiddos in the car, I will be quoting C.S. Lewis. So when I cuss in this podcast, it's C.S. <laughs> Lewis's fault and not mine. So it says, well, I'm damned, said the ghost. For the record, the only cuss word C.S. Lewis does is an intentional reference about damnation, which is actually what we're about to find is they were damned. They were in hell. Greytown actually is hell. So when you see I'm damned, he's using that in the technical literal sense and not the cussing sense, or at least Lewis is doing a really nice play on words there. He says, I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. It didn't write, Lynn, you know. What about poor Jack, eh? This is what is so funny about C.S. Lewis. He just jumps you in the middle of it. Like, it's like one of those episodes where you're going to get a flashback to figure out all the things that led up to that moment, but you start in the middle of a conversation. And this guy says, what about poor Jack, eh? You seem pretty pleased with yourself here, but what about poor Jack? The solid person replies, he's here, said the other. You'll meet him soon if you stay. And then the transparent, the ghost person goes, but you murdered him. I love this. It's just this setup is setting up this deal where the murderer's in heaven and the guy hates the ghost, hates that fact because that guy murdered someone. And how in the world is that guy coming to have any kind of conversation with him? How do you murder someone and still end up in heaven? One question. Do you think it was a tip of the hat to the story where Mary saw Jesus and she didn't know it was him? Oh, that's an interesting and, theory. Because it, it's like whenever, you know, he says, don't you recognize me? And it took a second. I don't know. That's really interesting. I've never quite thought about it. I will say Lewis has so many biblical references in here that it's hard to say he didn't. Because it is true that we'll be ourselves in heaven. But we will be changed right? Transformed. It's not like we're unrecognizable, but we're different. The other thing is in the previous chapters, he describes the people from heaven as people who are ageless, Yeah. right? They're not too old. Or like when you see someone old who has the joy of a child or a child that furrows his brow, like there's wisdom, like that's what these people look like. So I wonder if this guy's like 30 years younger and toned and buff and all that kind of <laughs> stuff so that he didn't recognize him because, you know, maybe he knew the murderer when he was, you know, after a dozen years in prison. I don't know. What's fascinating is this dialogue is very simple about where you've got the ghost person accusing the solid person of doing bad things. And the solid person just says, yeah. So like, but you murdered him. Of course I did. It's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean. But what about the poor chap himself lying dead and cold? And the solid guy says, but he isn't. I told you, you'll meet him soon. He sends you his love. They're coming with such different baggage. You've got the guy from Greytown who still has all the baggage of the past. And you've got the solid person, Lynn, who murdered Jack. And he's like, oh, no, of course I did. That was a horrible thing. 
it's okay now. It just kind of takes the wind out of your sails. You've ever like gotten mad at somebody and they're like, yeah, I missed that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. (laughs) No, I needed to hit something and there was nothing there to hit. (laughs) That's right. The ghost is just trying to hit somebody. And this is the setup for this conversation. I really imagine each of these conversations is C.S. Lewis knows someone for whom this is the case. I have to imagine C.S. Lewis's friends were reading this going, holy crap, he's talking about me. The next chapter is about a bishop. So when you go to the next episode, there's a bishop. I'm sure C.S. Lewis has in mind for that. But I think there's probably someone who killed someone, who murdered someone, and who turned their life around after they killed the guy. Well, it's kind of like being a preacher. The key is you got to know enough people to where it can't actually be that person. You have plausible deniability on who it is. So in my book, Solid Souls, I have a conversation about someone who had an affair. And I've been asked, is it so-and-so? And I'm like, nope. You have no idea the number of people I know who've had affairs or whose marriages have fallen apart and all the rest of that, which means that I can talk about it. And you're probably wrong about who I'm talking about in that instance. The same thing's true for murder. (laughs) If you know enough murderers, you can talk about it that way. Anyway, the ghost sets it up and Lewis is trying to set up this philosophical question. Although I think it's not philosophical, it's like practical. But what I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for. Please just plunge. You, a bloody murderer. Well, I've been walking the streets down there and living in the place like a pigsty all these years. I think that's the setup, right? I mean, how many times have we thought to ourselves, you mean if you believe in Jesus and he died on the cross and he saved your sins, that means you could end up sitting next to someone that's like horrible in heaven? Yeah. There's so many times you see people that aren't doing it right. You know, they aren't living right, but good stuff keeps happening to them. You're like, this doesn't make sense. It's on an eternal scale. That's especially true of God, right? Where you sit there and go, well, that person was horrible to me. They bullied me. They did all that kind of stuff. But they turned their life around. They chose a different They got the raise. They got the job. Like this person is a backstabber. They're lying and they got the job and I didn't. Like what? How did that work? Both on a day-to-day scale and an eternal scale. That's like a very human question. And the response from the solid person, from Lynn, is so helpful and also aggravating. The response from the solid person from Lynn, the murderer, is that's a little hard to understand at first, but it's all over now. You will be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. Every time someone else gets something we shouldn't and we waste our energy thinking about it, processing it, raging about it, the proper answer, according to Lewis in this at least, is don't worry about it. When I read that, I... It reminded me of somebody told me once, if your wife is ever really frustrated with you, just tell her to calm down. That'll work every time. (laughs) Has that ever actually worked for you, Forrest? No, no, not at all. Like That is the worst thing for those listeners. That is the worst thing you can ever tell your wife is to calm down. It's not going to work. But (laughs) it's usually followed by I am calm. I am calm and you're wrong. Yes. And so, but like I read this and I was thinking that is the equivalent of this, like telling somebody, oh, just don't worry about it. And it's the only thing they're worrying about. But the problem is, unlike telling your wife to calm down, not worrying about it is actually the right thing to do. It's just no one wants to hear it. Maybe calming down is the right thing to do too, but it's still not ever going to actually be a successful (laughs) strategy. What is interesting here, Forrest, is When you first read the book and you get to this place and you read, there's no need to bother about it. Do you think this is going to be a successful strategy? No. That's what I love about what we're about to get into is watching the solid people try strategies. You can see them going at it from different angles. And like, whenever I first read that, 
you know, like you said, you read that and you think that would not work on me. There's no way. Don't worry about all the ills that have been given to you. Don't worry about that person or this person or your arch nemesis or whatever it is, or even just, you know, so yeah, and love so. your neighbor. Just, just love your neighbor. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that works. <laughs> it does work by the way. It just, it's the right advice. We just hate it because we aren't going to take it. Right. So the ghost replies, no need to bother about it. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? And the response of the murderer is so helpful because it gives me at least a way to understand what it is going to take for us to actually take that good advice of loving your neighbor, of all the rest of it, of not being actually ashamed of yourself. He goes, no, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I've given myself up. I had to, you know, after the murder. That's what did it for me. That's how everything began. You get a sense that this guy killed somebody and went, that's not who I want to be. I must change every part of myself in order to find a different way forward. And so there are these moments where we write people off because they're a murderer, they're an adulterer, they're whatever it is. And actually that act of doing something that they never thought they should have done could actually be their salvation because it's the moment where they went, oh, this is not a good path for me. And we don't get that. I think it's funny in the next couple paragraphs, solid person tells them, he says, very likely we soon shall be, said the other, if you'll stop thinking about it. I started laughing thinking, have you ever done the thing with your kid where you say, don't think about pink elephants? Yes. And then, then you're like, don't think about it. Don't think it. And they're like, ah, that's all I can think about. Like this, it's like this guy, like, just don't think about it. Like, how do you? Don't think about it. It is what Christ tells us to do, right? Like the love your neighbor, serve them. If someone asks for your coat, give them your cloak as well. But the natural human response is, but what am I going to wear? Like, literally, what's the next step? And worrying about ourselves. I think that's why this conversation, starting with a murderer who gets into heaven, a murderer who's so good in heaven that he's actually coming to talk to others about it, it changes the entire dynamic because the ghost person, what he keeps wanting is what's his. So he ends up talking about how he sees himself, how the ghost sees himself. He says, I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man. I don't say I had any faults far from it, but I've done my best all my life. See, I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job. See, that's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. He's still worried about him, right? The message from the solid person is don't worry about you and what you've done and who you think you are. Give it up. And he's like, but no, no, I'm proud of who I was. I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of that I don't owe anyone anything, that I stood on my own two feet. The solid person responds, it'd be much better not to go on about that now. And he goes, who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I am. I'm like, this is like the guy who's like, I'm not yelling. You're clearly yelling, sir. (laughs) But I just ask for nothing but my rights. And the solid person responds, oh, it's not so bad as that. I don't have my rights or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. This is the thing of, does the murderer deserve to be in heaven? No. But neither does the guy talking to him who just did what he thought was right in the world. I love right here again, we have, who knows whether you will be, only be happy and come with me. It's like, just be happy. Like That's all you got to do is be happy and just come on. Like, let go. Just. Do you ever think about that fish on the wall that moves? And Billy, like, or that. Billy, Billy Bass. Bass. Billy, Billy Bass. Bass. Yeah. It's the uh, don't worry, <laughs> be happy. 
I do think like it's funny that the message of C.S. Lewis from the solid people is don't worry, just step into joy. Just be happy. Come with me. Start walking with me. I think that the theme of would you rather be what you think is right or be happy, it's kind of picks up throughout the next couple chapters. I do. But in the end, what is right is to be happy or rather joyful. We like to create a line where there isn't a line, right? There's a line where God looks at us and goes, why is that going to be what you're doing? Like, why is that what you're putting your entire life on? So like this guy, what do you keep arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. For the record, bloody and bleeding is a semi-cuss word in Britain. And so he's making a play on words here for bleeding charity. And because the solid person says, then do ask it once, ask for the bleeding charity. It's very specific reference to the blood of Jesus, right? The bleeding charity is literally none of us deserve it, but the blood of Christ has washed it all away that you don't want your rights. I really think this is why this book is so practical and transforming for me is I may not have killed anyone and having a conversation with a murderer is not a standard day for me. But we all know people for whom we don't understand why they got it better than we did. And all we want is what's ours. And the whole point of this is, do you really want what's yours? Do you? Because this guy, like the ghost says, basically, I was a decent man. All I did was what was right. And the solid person looks at him and says, you weren't a decent man and you didn't do your best. None of us were, and none of us did. Lord bless you, it doesn't matter now. There's no need to go into it all now. And the ghost replies, you have the face to tell me I wasn't decent, at least I wasn't a murderer. I added the, at least you weren't a murderer. And he goes, of course, must I go into all that? Murdering Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it, but I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. <laughs> I was reading this and I was thinking, yeah, this is pretty much every time you get feedback at work <laughs> or like, you know, coming from corporate America, the owner of our firm that I work for, he used to say, feedback is a gift because all feedback is a gift. You don't necessarily always like all the gifts you get, but it's all a gift. And I was reading this thinking, isn't that what we do when we get feedback? The first instinct we do is like turn it to how is this person telling me that after what they did? Like Or defensiveness yeah, you, or, you're like, well, but did you see so-and-so or yeah. where did that go? And you just want what's yours. And it's never helpful. That reaction, that immediate gut reaction. We all have Defensiveness. It. We all have it and we don't like it. You discover at the end how this all works out. So the solid person named Lynn has murdered a guy named Jack. Turns out the guy who is in hell, the guy who is coming out of Greytown, was their boss. And he says, all the men who worked under you were the same. You made it hard for us. And says, I wanted to murder you in my heart every day. How many times have we focused so much on something like hate for someone? And it really goes back to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus said, where he talks about, you know, you've said you don't murder someone, but I tell you, don't hold a grudge against somebody. You know, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even lust after somebody else. Jesus is going after something deeper, that you look at the murderer and everyone says, well, at least I'm not that guy, except that guy somehow ended up in heaven and the other guy didn't. Yeah. And you recognize that wanting to murder someone in your heart, having that grudge, having that anger is actually going to drag you down into hell way more than a single act of passion, no matter how bad that act is. 
And so the offer is to go to the mountains. Each of these people in the rest of the chapters in The Great Divorce are going to have the choice. Do they nurse their anger, their grief, their pride? For this particular guy, it was his rights, you know, getting what's his. Is he going to choose that or is he going to choose joy and go to the mountains? Those are the only two choices. And not everyone has the same sin. Not everyone has the same brokenness. Not everyone has the same grievance. And that's really what makes up the rest of the book. But everyone has the choice to lay down their sin, lay down their grievance, lay down their baggage, and walk towards the mountains. And the message from the solid people is always, come on, it'll be a joy going to the mountain with you. And I'll tell you, just spoiler alert for the next chapters, most don't take it. And this guy doesn't. He ends walking away going, I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. And he walked off. It's kind of an unsatisfying end to the chapter. But also, most of us would choose that. At least that's how I see it. I like how it says, it was almost happy now. Also, it changes from he to it. The pronoun in the book changes when they end up making the choice not to choose heaven and to choose their grievance. This is a big deal later on when they describe what the choice is and we get a clearer sense of what they're choosing. But it is a huge point to notice that they go from being a person to being their issue, to just finally moving from complaining about something to literally just embodying the complaint. Uh, It says, it was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. Like it had, it was almost happy that it had some kind of control even if that control was going to hell. Yeah. Next episode, we talk about a bishop, and I'm very excited about talking about religious leaders that go to hell. That sounds perfectly fascinating. And maybe it's my own deal of going, see, Jesus, they're worse than I am. But I suppose that's for next episode. Thanks for listening. But I know just why I'm here Lift me out of the ways Keep me steady in the face of 